I like the lights we've got going on today. Yeah, we've got a bit of rainbow. But a random rainbow? Yeah, it's good. Red and yellow and green and yellow again and orange and lots of pink. Good song. Thank you. Josephine. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you. Um, is it also mine? Sure. Oh, Hi, everyone. Lot, there's a lot of tension in the room now. <laughs> this uh, podcast is called Musicals That We Know. That's Ruth. That's Josephine. It's called My Favourite Musical. Oh, is that- you can't just change the title 31 episodes in. Is that how? No, we're 41 episodes in. 41 episodes in. Oh, <laughs> my God. I think I know my podcast better than I you do, I literally skipped 10 episodes in my head. <laughs> you didn't skip them. You went back. Yeah. Are you okay? No. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favourite Musical, the podcast. Um, We've done the introductions. Yeah, we talk about musicals. This We talk about our favourite musicals, well, apparently. I talk about my favourite musicals and Josephine talks about musicals that exist I've heard of in the world. Musicals that exist. <laughs> um i don't have any apologies for the week do you i do i'm excited i have a proxy apology from my husband he wrote it like he actually wrote it out it was very important to him he instigated this whole process he said i'm gonna write an apology that i need you to read out is it for all men is it just like men are shit we're sorry that we're shit (laughs) no he's not at that stage yet i'm getting him to that stage okay dear listeners of my favorite musical (laughs) Literally, I hereby formally withdraw my previously stated opinion of the musical Chess by Betty and Bjorn and Tim Rice. My previous attitude that the music was too busy and dated and that the story seemed confusing and stupid was wrong. It was I who was stupid. (laughs) In my ignorance, I did not see the melodious genius that carried a complex and layered story exploring the human condition and the political posturing that manipulated players as though they were the pieces on a board. (laughs) The music is not dated but rather enshrines and pays homage to a decade where genres are fearlessly abandoned and guitars fearlessly shred. Chess did not just surprise me, it enraptured me. It had me weeping on the altar of regret. And so I am sorry. I am sorry to publicly slander such a sublime work. Having now seen it, I admit that I was wrong. It is now in my top five musicals of all time, if it will have me. Sincerely, Shane Emmett. Oh, my God. (laughs) So Josephine was sick and couldn't come, but Shane and I, amongst the group of our friends, went and saw a production at the Newcastle Civic Theatre. Of Chess, yeah. Of Chess. So originally, um, like, I bought a ticket for me and my mum. Without him. Shane, because I said to Shane, oh, like, I'll buy you a ticket. He said, I don't want to see Chess. I hate Chess. (laughs) And I was like, okay, no worries. So when I was sick and my mum was sick, I just said to him, like, look, you're going to have to go, so just suck it up and go and maybe you'll change your mind because you're an idiot and here we are. And lo and behold. Lo and behold. Shane is now obsessed with chess. Um, it was, yeah, I have to say, like, I just have to shout out Sylvie Palladino, who God, a lot of Australian good. listeners would know from the carols every year and and things of that nature yeah, she was paid Florence. Florence, yeah. And she was, it was out of this world, her performance. <sighs> like, it was other, it was otherworldly. Like, I've never heard anyone sing the role that well. I... Don't regret much. That's not true. I regret everything. But I particularly am sad that I missed this. Yeah. Oh, man, I'm sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's uh, that's my apology <laughs> from Shane. <laughs> do you have a spotlight for us today? I do. Tell me. This week I'm talking about a woman named Rachel Cargill. Hmm. 
Hmm. Do you follow her on Instagram? No, I don't. No, okay. Should I? Yes, you definitely will after I finish speaking. Um, so she's a black American author, speaker, activist, known for her involvement in anti-racism work. And I've followed her on Instagram for some time and she's really amazing, a super inspiring person. Um, the reason I'm talking about her today is that specifically in late June 2020, she did a collaboration with Lin-Manuel Miranda, which sort of um, – When I say a collaboration, like it was a series of photos that juxtaposed headlines about the Black Lives Matter movement with um, lyrics from Hamilton. So it was kind of just like this series of, yeah, like just sort of showing the parallels that's happened in that time. Um, She's also got a foundation called the Loveland Foundation, which aims to increase access to therapy for black women and girls. So basically like pays for black women and girls to go to therapy. And she's got some really great Quotes like, I don't want your love and light if it doesn't come with solidarity and action. Oh, I love and it. maybe you manifested it, maybe it's white privilege. I love that. <laughs> Isn't that good? Yeah. That's so good. So she's really awesome. I'm going to link to both the post that she did with all the Black Lives Matter Hamilton um, quotes and also an, a link to her Instagram. I really recommend everyone follow her. Interestingly, like 75% of her f- um, followership on Instagram is, is white women. Yeah, wow. So, like, for whatever reason, that's kind of that's been the her, core of her yeah. her work kind of thing. That's like, great. And, and a lot of it is just about like, yeah, education. And yeah. yeah. So anyway, just massive shout out to her. She's awesome. I am now one of those white women. Excellent. I just followed her. Yeah. Nice. Thank you for that. No worries. What a legend. Yeah. Um, okay. So I, for my spotlight, I was inspired by my musical this week um, to dig into female representation on Broadway. So it's something we've discussed many, many times on this show, but I found a really good article by The Wrap, which I'll link to in the show notes, but have a listen to some of the stats that were cited in this article. Yeah. They're all taken from the 2018 Broadway season. Yeah. Okay. It won't surprise you that 68% of Broadway audience is female. Yeah. Right? That's no surprise. 37% of lead roles on Broadway are played by women. Mm. Women directed only 19% of shows. And wrote 16%. Ah. In roles traditionally filled by women, stats were as expected. So women represent 67% of makeup designers, 54% of costume designers, and 53% of stage managers. Yeah. Um, and in the only positive that I could find, in positive upswing, women now represent 40% of music directors, which is oh, that's good. on the rise. Yeah. But those stats about um, musical directors, I said, yeah, Women directing, women writing, and women actually acting. Yeah. It's like woefully disgustingly low. Yeah. 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 I mean I mean we've we talked about it. We've talked about it many times, but like what what's going on? In a way, I think the particularly like makeup design, costume design, those in a way that stat is very low when you think of the fact that those would probably be considered female focused um art forms. Yeah. It shows you that when there are men like they're getting 50, the jobs in a way. 54% of costume designers. Yeah. Yeah, like if there's a man there, he's getting a job. Yeah, it's just, it's interesting. Not that, I'm, I mean, I'm sure no, everyone I'm sure, is. Well, some incredibly course, talented men, of course. Of course, but. but yeah, mm. yeah, it's interesting. The world is broken. Yeah. Smash the patriarchy. Yeah. Mm. Um, what are we talking about for Theatre Explained this week? Okay, I have a confession to make. In our last full episode, yeah. I'd written what our Theatre Explained was and then you were like, okay, for our Theatre Explained, we're doing blah, blah, blah. And I looked at my notes and I was like, well, that's not what I have. Really? <laughs> and I think I just fucked up. Like I looked at our like spreadsheet looked at the wrong, wrong. wrong week. So I think we're talking about repertory theatre. We are. But I thought we were talking about that last time. Hilarious. So I was winging it hardcore. How funny is that? 
I think we're talking about repertory theatre. We theater. are. <laughs> Amazing. What is repertory theatre? Okay. Repertory theatre. It's a system of play production in which a resident acting company keeps like a, a catalogue of plays that are always ready for performance. Yeah. Often like it's like a different show, a night of the week, um, that they will be able to like trot out. Yeah, and often they're our, like rehearsing one show during the day and performing another at night yeah, kind that's of thing, right. so ready for the next week. Lots happening at once. Yeah. So usually, yeah, like Ruth has just said, it's supplemented by preparation and rehearsal of new plays every now and then. Um, it's still pretty successful in the States and Europe, not that – and not that this is theatre per se, but I think Cirque du Soleil is a really good example of repertory sort of style of a company. Oh, interesting. Um, because they, as a company, have lots of the same shows sort of trotted out and they're performed regularly. Yeah. And, um, so it's not as traditional in the in the usual sense of yeah. repertory theatre. But it's not really done here in Australia. No, it was interesting. I was sort of trying to work out. I found a couple of like amateur theatres who do it. Yeah. Like I think there was one up in Queensland that does it. And yeah. A Obviously few those... like Shakespearean companies do it. Yeah, but like, even like – but certainly not that tradition of – so in America, like summer stock, for example, mm. is a really common example of when often they do things in rep where they yeah. might do six shows in a summer and yeah. they'll do, you know, two weeks at a time of one while rehearsing the next one during the day and then they get that next one up and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's also called just repertory rep. Obviously people just mm. call it rep for short and, and stock or summer stock, like I said. Um and basically, yeah, in the UK, it's quite different. It's to the quite, US. yeah, and um, and there are still some professional repertory theaters. Yeah. Um, so, for example, um, Birmingham Rap is quite mm. a big one over there. That's sort so of where it really originated, though, right? I think that's right. Yeah. yeah. So they present a season with each play generally having an unbroken run of between three and six weeks, and. Uh, this is the form of repertory theatre that the majority of theatres like Birmingham Rep, which are also called producing theatres, mm. now follow. And the actors have the luxury of at least three weeks of rehearsal and audiences see better shows, basically. Yeah, so that's yeah. interesting. I was remembering um, that when I saw that Ian McKellen one-man show, he sort of lamented about the the, the, the decline of, yeah. of, of repertory theatre yeah. in the UK because how good training it was for yeah. all of them. Well, I... So from the perspective of the actor, it would be incredibly yeah, valuable. Yeah, because you're in from a company. From the audience perspective, I don't think anyone's missing out on anything. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. from the acting point, yes. They, I, I read a few articles that did say that in a way it's good because you get to know the actors. Like you're always – well, also you're always seeing the same actors do different mm. things, so you get to know them as performers a bit as well. That's true. Well, I mean, that obviously doesn't give us – many opportunities for other actors but yeah. um it does I, seem like quite a selfish form of... i was also remembering that what about 15 years ago sydney theatre company had the actors company do you remember that i do they only had it for a few years mm. but similarly they formed yeah like a group of like they yeah. performed a couple of plays a year and they were kind of an ensemble that could be in plays yeah. and I thought, yeah. yeah it's an interesting idea yeah it is an interesting idea i think um Going back even further, like the Commedia sort of Commedia dell'arte was yeah. started in a similar way. Like yeah. a, a travelling ensemble would constantly rehearse new works and um, and move in that way. But that's just like the nature of moving artists, yeah. you know, 500, 600 years ago. Yeah. It's just different now. Interesting. Mm. Yeah. Very so interesting. Repertory theatre. This has been Theatre Explained. Do you have any content recommendations for us this week? Okay, yes. So it was Bernadette Peters' birthday on the oh, 28th yes. of February. She turned 73. She looks incredible. She does. And um, so in honour of her birthday, a birthday I celebrate 
just like I would as a, my own. As a, as a holiday. It's a holiday. Yeah. Um, Playbill had this wonderful picture gallery celebrating her incredible career. Yeah. Um, it just brought me a lot of joy and so it should bring joy to you if you're human. But also Broadway World did a video gallery which I spent like way too many hours watching. Gosh, <laughs> um, she's amazing. So, oh, so both are linked in the show notes. Both are joyful and amazing celebrating that wonderful woman who we all love. Today on Twitter I saw um, just this gif of when she walked out at um, Sondheim's Kennedy oh, yeah, Centre honors. That look, yeah, and but Sondheim's that, clapping. Yes, and Sondheim, and they like someone described her thing just like Sondheim, just like fully gay gasping at, he, he at his own like, Kennedy <gasps> Centre honors. He's like, yay! Yeah. Like she walks on stage. It's the cutest thing ever. It's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. find you a person who looks at you like Sondheim yes. looks at Benedict Peters. Absolutely. Oh my god. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. So I've got a couple. My of first is do. that um, we've talked about the podcast Every Musical Ever a few times. Mm. They're back with their third season. Nice. So um, if you enjoy that musical, it's a no, uh, not podcast, podcast, sorry. If you enjoy that podcast, it's another musical theatre podcast and it's also Australian. Um, and I have previously talked about Michael Riedel's first book, which was called Razzle Dazzle some months yes. ago. Yes, yes, he did. His new book is out. Um, I'm about halfway through it. It's called Singular Sensation, The Triumph of Broadway. Nice. And his first book um, – just basically like detailed a whole lot of stories and stuff. And I think he just felt like there was heaps more stories to tell. So as I said, I'm about halfway through and he's talked about like a lot about like Garth Drabinsky and live bands and like, um, like Disney coming to Broadway and like the cleaning up of Times Square, like the history of rent, like so it's that kind of like eighties, nineties sort of time period. And it's sort of moving slowly forward. So I assume it goes into the two thousands. Um, that's cool. Yeah. But all the live event stuff was really interesting. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've talked about that a few times. But yeah. yeah. But, yeah, so um, highly recommend that book if you're nice. looking for a good nerdy theatre book to read. And surely we all are. Absolutely. Um, Josephine, do you want to tell us about a podcast? A musical? Uh, oh, my God. Are I'm you just okay using today? those words interchangeably. Yeah, they're different. Yeah, I don't know what's happening. I can tell you about a podcast. Uh, yeah. I'm going to tell you about a musical. <laughs> the musical I want to talk to you about is My Fair Lady. Interesting. What do you think about that? Um, I've seen this show a lot in yes. my life. Are you the same? Yes, a lot. I've seen it professionally times. several times. Mm-hmm, me too. It's been done a lot in my life mm. um, and I've seen it and I'm at amateur versions about three times mm. I think as well. Mm. I think some of the songs are okay. Yeah. Uh, I think it's got a terrible message. Mm. That's about the end of my review. Interesting. I in the 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 production I enjoyed the most was the revival. The recent revival, yeah. 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 yeah Where nice. I saw Laura Benanti play yes. Eliza. Yeah. Cuz she's good. Oh, I love her. Um, she was born to play that role. She was. I like I feel passionately about a lot of golden age musicals. We know that about me and I think I put this on the list in a moment of weakness, but also when I got to when I got to doing it this, this week and really like researching it, I'm really glad that I did. Yeah. Because I I feel a lot of feelings that I want to share with you. Okay. And this is our first Learner and Low musical. Yeah, true. I know that well, all of you most... would have thought that I would have done Brigadoon first, <laughs> but you were wrong. It's the most enduring, right? Yeah, I mean Brigadoon's yeah. pretty enduring, but yes, no, it is. It's definitely. Do you the reckon most... a production of Brigadoon would sell out now the way My Fair Lady does? I don't think so. It never would have. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's let's be let's not think that I am any sort of arbiter of taste. Uh. <laughs> um, okay, so this is my mum's favorite movie musical, uh. and it's also one of my favorite movie musicals. Interesting. It's so beautiful. Problems aside, 
It's a gorgeous film and I think it is a wonderful musical and I think there's a place for it in this world and I'm going to try and convince you all of that. Okay. This is in defence of My Fair Lady. (laughs) Okay, the plot. I'm going to assume that we all know the basic plot of My Fair Lady but it's based on George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion which is a story about Eliza Doolittle, a cockney flower girl with a really thick accent who is trained by a phonetician Henry Higgins to speak like a lady in inverted commas and possibly rise above her station to work in a flower shop. Um, he chews her until she fools the whole world into believing that she is highborn, even though he treats her like shit. There is sort of this like implied love story there. Um, meanwhile, yeah. this earnest young man falls in love with her and she sort of doesn't have time for his nonsense because she's dealing with Henry Higgins, um, the king of misogyny. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of debate over how the show ends, but in the original musical and in the film, there's this happy ending, once again in inverted commas, where Eliza and Henry end up together. This is incorrect and I'll talk about why it should be changed and has been changed. That's the plot. Yeah. Like there are lots of things I'm missing but that's pretty much it, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So some background. Okay, the play, which I will go into detail about later, it was written in 1913 to great acclaim and in the mid-1930s this film, film producer Gabriel Pascal acquired the rights to like a number of George Bernard Shaw's plays to produce his films including Pygmalion. Um Shaw had actually had a really bad experience with one of his other plays being turned into an operetta and so he refused to let Pygmalion be turned into a musical. Mm. However, after he died in 1950, (laughs) Gabriel Pascal was like, sweet, and asked Alan J. Lerner to write a musical adaptation of Pygmalion. Yeah, right. So Lerner got Frederick Lowe on board and they began writing. The major problem with the play was that it actually just didn't suit the conventions of a musical, namely... The main story was not a love story in the play. There was no subplot. There was no room for an ensemble. So interestingly, I didn't know this, but Rodgers and Hammerstein had tried to write a musical adaptation of Pygmalion and had given up. They were like, it can't be done. Right. Um, So Lona and Lowe actually gave up for two years and they split, I think, and like both did other projects for a bit. Um, And during this hiatus, Gabriel Pascal, the guy who owned the rights, died and they – after he died, Lerner and Lowe were both sort of re-energised to get back into it and just, like, overcome the problems. They took some pretty great liberties with the play, I think, although they both say, like, oh, no, it just needed a few tweaks and it was fine. Right. So, interestingly, at the same time as Lerner and Lowe were madly writing the musical, they didn't have rights to the play because someone else had control control over Pascal's estate. Um, MGM, so Metro Goldwyn Mayer, at the time were seeking the rights to turn Pygmalion into a musical. So there was this sort of like race to have right, a project. to get it done, yeah. Yeah, and so Lona and Lowe thought like if they had, if they presented like, well, we've got it done, we'll get the rights. And they did. Um, so the show was booked for out-of-town tryouts at the Schubert Theatre in New Haven where so many Golden Age musicals tried out, like remember yeah. Elaine Stritch and Pal Joey. So... This is awesome. Noel Coward was originally offered the role of Henry Higgins. I've heard that. I love that. It's incredible. It's incredible. He passed it up and suggested Rex Harrison. Right. So Rex Harrison was an English actor who had enjoyed some success on the English stage. He was actually, um, I think he was a fighter pilot in World War II. Wow. And it's it's pretty Dr. Doolittle, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, because Dr. Doolittle's like the end of the movie musical. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Mary Martin was originally considered for the role of Eliza, but she declined the role. And the super young Julie Andrews had just had her Broadway debut in The Boyfriend when she was 19 and all of like the creative team had gone to see The Boyfriend and they were like, her. 
Um, and like, fair enough. Fair enough. But she was 19. Holy shit. Yeah. So young. So young. Moss Hart agreed to direct the show after hearing only two of the songs. And um, I love this. Al Hirschfeld um, drew the original Playbill artwork. Yeah. Which is nice. Amazing. Amazing. Okay. So. After this really incredibly successful tryout in New Haven and they had four weeks in Philadelphia, My Fair Lady premiered on Broadway at the Mark Hellinger Theatre on March 15th, 1956. The Mark Hellinger Theatre is now actually the Times Square Church. Oh, yes, that one. Because I can see yes. your brain going I was like, like, which one's that? that? Yeah, yeah it's, yes. It's, yeah. And it's still inside. It's still inside the church. Yeah, it is. That's right. Oh, incredible. It, and it's like fully preserved. Yes. Yeah, but it's not been a theatre since like 1989, I and think. And they had some enormous lease on it. Yes. I think. Yeah. yeah. I've read like, like an article year about lease it. lease or something? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so during its run, My Fair Lady transferred to the Broadhurst Theatre and then to the Broadway Theatre where it closed in September 1962 after 2,717 performances. Oh, right. Which was a record at the time. I was going to say, that would have been massive at the time. Totally. Like we're talking, yeah, yeah. So the original cast recording, which is available on Spotify, I will link to it, became the best-selling album in the US in 1956. And that original production won Best Musical at the 1957 Tony Awards. It was up against Bells Are Ringing, Candide and The Most Happy Fella. Mm, interesting. Interestingly, like all still musicals that are yeah, it's true. Like all in sort of the lexicon still. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, it also won Best Actor for Rex Harrison. It won Best Direction, Best Scenic Design, Best Costume Design, and Best Conductor. In an upset, though, Judy Holiday won Best Actress for Bells Are Ringing over Julie Andrews, ah. which I think was a mistake. So the show then transfers to the West End in 1958 with um, Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison reprising their roles at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane where it ran for five and a half years, so 2,281 performances. Just another great run. Yeah. Mm. Like remember this is the time where shows just didn't run that That's right. A a successful show still only ran a year. That's right. Yeah. So then we have the film. Okay, I love the film. Have you seen it? Of course. You say of course. Okay. Uh, Yeah. Okay, but a lot of those really popular ones I have. Yeah. Well, that I think this is one of those. Definitely. What do yeah. you think of the film? Um, I, I think that Audrey Hepburn's not right for the role. Yeah. But otherwise I like it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, nice. I love it and I have such a weakness for Audrey Hepburn. Oh, interesting. Like, oh, my God. So Rex Harrison came back as Higgins and the casting of Audrey Hepburn over Julie Andrews was super controversial. Yeah, well, I think it just I've just heard so much about that story. Yeah. And as I've gotten older, I'm just like. Fuck that. But yeah, like right. I'm just so angry for Julie Andrews. So true. Yeah. So Julie Andrews was so celebrated in that role that people like were just unanimously pissed that um, she didn't get the role and that Audrey Hepburn can't sing. So she was dubbed by um, the leading voice of the era, Marnie Nixon. Oh, yes, Who West had dubbed like West Side, The King and I, like yes. just a bunch of, yeah, what the fuck. Anyway, so at the time Julie Andrews had no film experience and that was the main excuse as to why they didn't, She'd not been in any films. Yeah. Of course, Mary Poppins was produced the same year. That's right. And we all found out that Julie Andrews is a fucking boss. Yeah. Um, a lot of people were pretty displeased with the film, but it did win Best Picture at the Oscars that year. My Fair Lady did. Yes, it yeah. did. Um, did no. it beat Mary Poppins? Yeah. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. That is a big year for film. It's a big year for film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so apparently, like, um, Lerner and Lowe weren't happy with the film. Oh, really? Well, they were not happy with the Audrey Hepburn thing and there were just a couple of things that they were just like, mm, nah. I'm glad they were loyal to her. Me loyal too. Loyal to Julie, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, she was a literal child. Yeah. Just, anyway. 
Okay, so there have been so many productions. Like I, I literally cannot comment no. on them all. I just can't. So some notable ones include a 1981 Broadway revival where Rex Harrison came back again oh. as Higgins at the age of 73. 73? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's just crazy. That as well insane. as um, there's a 1993 Broadway revival starring Richard Chamberlain, which oh, is okay. the only reason I'm mentioning this is that I have a love for the Thornbirds. You do. And he played um, Father Ralph de Bricassart right. in Thornbirds. So for the two people out there who will get that, <laughs> there you go. Um, so then we have like Cameron McIntosh gets involved in the early 2000s and there's a production with Trevor Nunn directing on the West End. That one randomly starred Martine McCutcheon as Eliza. Yes, I think I knew that. Yeah, so some of you will remember her from that clusterfuck of toxic bullshit Love Actually. Oh, I still love Love Actually. No, I'm sorry. No, Ruth, you're wrong. She was Hugh Grant's love interest. She was the one with huge thighs. That's right. I mean, that's mm. terrible, Those that, that dialogue. But oh, I, that's the only terrible thing about that I film. I still have a soft spot for that film. <laughs> she actually won an Olivier for that, wow. for her role as, for Eliza. I think she would have been great. She must have been. Yeah. She would look the part. She's so beautiful. Yeah. Um, guess who played Higgins in that production? So I'm talking um, the early 2000s. Trevor Nunn directing. It's not Richard E. Grant, is it? No, it's not. Okay, because I, I knew he did it here. Um, it's Jonathan Price. Oh. In probably his least problematic role ever, which is saying a lot. <laughs> it's still pretty. And it's still pretty bullshit. Yeah, isn't that funny? <laughs> Poor Jonathan Price. Yeah. So then, well, between then, like I haven't written all the Australian ones, but I saw a production with Richard E. Grant. Yeah, so I that was that what, one. like early 2000s? I, I wanted to say like. 2010 or oh, 12 okay. Maybe I'm, yeah, misjudging it. Yeah, you might be right. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't think I was working at Playbill yet when I saw it, but maybe. Because that was at, well, we could track it because that was at, um, what's the theatre that was at the MLC Centre? Theatre Royal. It was at Theatre Royal yeah, before right. it shut, obviously. Yeah. Um, anyway, so there's then the 2018 Broadway revival that Ruth saw. It played at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre starring Harry Haddon Payton as Higgins. Um, yeah, that's the one I can never remember his name, but he was in Downton Abbey. Yeah, he was in Downton Abbey. I can't remember the role he played some He's sort not of like lord. one of the lead leads, no. right? No, and also he was quite young. So he was only born in 1981. So he oh. was a young Higgins. Oh, he looks older than that, I would he say. Does. Not he does. Not in a, a bad way. Hairline. I was very attracted to him. I can bet. It was the first Which is amazing time. considering you're attracted to Higgins. <laughs> well, that's what I was. The worst that's character a, ever. I think I said to you at the time, I said it's the first time I've ever Wanted them to end up together. Fuck, gross. Disgusting. Yeah. Okay, and also that production, Norbert Leo Bus was Doolittle. Yeah, which was random, but I still love it. Very random. I remember watching that performance at the Tonys and being like, no. I think I I made the comment at the time that it's the first time I've ever been attracted to, like, all of the men in the production because the boy who played Freddie, who had also been in Hamilton, like, talk about diversity. Yeah, how do you go from Hamilton to my family? Oh, my God. He was so divine. Um... (laughs) I was obsessed. You and your crushes. Um, it's cute. And, yeah, were you going to say about the Australian production, what, three or four years ago? Not yet. Oh, okay. I'm still talking about this one. Is that okay with you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so this revival closed after 509 performances. It was nominated for all of the Tonys, but it only won Best Costume Design because Best Revival that year went to Once on This Island. Was Fairly it, and squarely. Was it the girl from Six Feet Under that played Lauren Ambrose? Yeah, Lauren was Ambrose she Eliza? was Eliza. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Because yeah. I know Laura Benanti was a replacement. Yeah. What, so you didn't see Lauren Ambrose? No, I saw, yeah, I saw Laura Benanti. I saw it about a year into its run, Laura I think. Laura Benanti. Yeah. I love her. Yeah, same. Yeah, so the, you saw the recent um, Australian production of My Fair Lady, yeah. right? Did you like it? Yeah, it was 
so long. Like, it was a full three and a half hours. Why so long? I think they just, like, they really made the most of the set changes. Like, they played <sighs> all of the set change music in full and, yeah. So unnecessary. Yeah. Um, yeah. We, I don't have anything to say about oh, it except that it was recent and a friend of mine was Eliza. And um, directed by Julie Andrews. Yeah, it was directed by yeah. Julie Andrews. Yeah. That's right, which that is was cool. The that big is really thing. cool. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. was strange, though, to me because it was only done not that long ago in Australia, but it is one of those shows just keeps getting well, trotted out. I think she out. wanted to do it. And so. It's cute. Yeah. I yeah. love her so much. I love Julie Andrews. I mean, yeah, she's oh. incredible. Okay, let's now talk about the ending and the feminism of this work. Okay. Okay, to begin with, I read Pygmalion in year 11 because I had like this incredible feminist icon of an English teacher who introduced me to like sci-fi and Margaret Atwood and why men are the worst and thinking, like she just introduced me to what thinking was. So Pygmalion is a feminist work. It just is. Like George Bernard Shaw is definitely a feminist. Yeah. Honestly, it's so obvious that Henry Higgins is supposed to be like this reprehensible misogynist and that Eliza and Henry are not ever involved in some sort of love thing. Like the whole premise of the play is based on the Greek myth of Pygmalion. Pygmalion was a sculptor who had no interest in women until he fell in love with his own sculpture, um, Galatea. Anyway, the play is like far more a comment on the role of women in Victorian England and the dickheadedness of men who think women are purely their objects, which... Shokari, is this still relevant today? I don't know. It's only been 100 years, maybe. But, like, George Bernard Shaw literally hated any reference to there being a love story between Higgins and Eliza. Yeah, interesting. But audiences and critics were probably, I think, too dumb and had, like, too much internalised misogyny that they wanted some bullshit happy ending. Yeah. Um, and that's where we get, like, the film ending and the original musical ending, which George Bernard Shaw was like, no, it's, you... That is not how the play ends. No, it's yeah. not supposed to be like that. Like, yeah. it's not a love story. There's no love yeah. there. It's, that's just not the dynamic. So there is another way. What is actually scripted is Eliza comes in at the end, right, and Higgins says, where are my damn slippers or some other bullshit. Yeah, where the devil am I? Yeah, slippers or whatever. And Eliza just smiles as the music plays out. That is like what is literally written in in the the script. script, yeah. So she doesn't have to smile and stay. She can just smile and like leave. Yeah. There's no like she smiles and they live happily ever after. Like it could just be a smile at you poor sick bastard, mm. fuck you, see you later. Yeah. And that's what they did in the revival. Yeah. Right? And she literally walked out um, like through the audience. Yes. She sort of like smiled and then like. Yes. And he was still calling for her, I that's think. That's right. Yeah. Because like so in the revival, like there was no, they didn't have to rewrite the ending because that's how the ending was supposed to be anyway. She just leaves yeah. instead. Like It's truer to the intent of the play. It totally the material, is. Yeah. Absolutely. So the fact that she just laders out of there is so exactly what this yeah. is intended to be. Um, George Bernard Shaw never intended for Eliza to stay with Higgins. Higgins was supposed to see her leave and realise that his sculpture, like his creation, had become a living, breathing entity with thoughts and feelings. Mm. And, like, there's supposed to be this moment of, like, oh, fuck. Yeah. And apparently originally I think he was supposed to yell out, like, Galatea or whatever in the play. Of course the musical thought that that would be too hard and a man couldn't possibly learn a lesson. (laughs) Like, oh, um, he must find love. He must be looked after by a woman. Yeah. Uh, Even after being just such a dick, such a, just such a misogynist. Like, I was, I was racking my brain for like a character with just as many terrible qualities as Higgins and I really struggled to find. Yeah. Like 
I really do believe yeah, that he's yeah. just awful, reprehensible. I actually think it doesn't help that somehow and for some reason Higgins has become the lead role of this show. Mm. Um, even though he doesn't sing and is a douchebag, I don't think he should be the lead in this show. And, and for a character who doesn't sing, he's got an awful lot of fucking songs. He does. That's right. <laughs> so like I mentioned, I saw this really great production with Richard E. Grant as Higgins. That's an actor that I very much admire. Yeah, like I love Richard E. Grant. Oh, he did an incredible job of making – this like fuckhead of a character actually appears sympathetic, but it's Eliza's show. Yeah. Like we have to stop saying that this is like Higgins is the charming character. Like no, this no. this show is about Eliza. So like I was reflecting on Shane's feedback and your feedback about the production of Chess that you saw, where yeah. it was so clear that that is Florence's story. Yeah, yeah. This has to be the same thing. This has to be Eliza's story. Yeah. And it has to be seen through her gaze. Yeah. And not this like these awful men around her because. Really, the way the way it is written is that they don't learn a lesson, they don't evolve. She evolves, yeah. and she powers up and levels up, and yeah. then leaders out of there. I think you know. I said like it's the only production I've ever saw where I actually wanted them to end up together, and I think that was also due to the way they decided Higgins should be portrayed. Similarly, and even taking it further than with Richard E. Grant, it was the first time that it actually felt like he learned a lesson. It was the first time there was any humanity to the character, yeah. kind of thing that you actually felt like oh, that character is really making decisions that aren't just like, you know, broad paint strokes of, you know. a caricature of a person. Yeah, exactly. But what I think makes this a really strong play originally is that Higgins is a caricature of a terrible person. Mm. And so why do we try, it's the same as with Miss Saigon, why do we try to actually make these men sympathetic? Yeah. There is nothing sympathetic about Higgins and we don't need to have that. Like you almost think it should be played as an arsehole. As he's he's written. And that Eliza should be like, yeah, fuck you. Yeah, fuck you. and, And it's such classist bullshit. Like let's not pretend that this is a not a problematic work because it is very classist Mm. definitely but like I don't think it does anyone any favors by trying to romanticize this character no and so I think we think that this play is problematic because of the way it has been done but it is not yeah it's just not like it, it can be a really powerful strong woman just saying like no I don't think so I don't think that's what she gets what she needs and she leaves yeah I love it yeah so yeah, let's stop making this about Higgins. It should always be her show. Ultimately, she is the one to call the shots and, like, put an end to his behaviour. Mm. And my problem with the film has always been the ending. And, like, Eliza giving him a solid fuck off is the only way to end the story. Yeah. So that's been my TED Talk about so that. So do you feel like now you would, like, I would do this show but that's how I would. that's how I would direct 100%. it? 100%. Yeah. And I would make sure that. I mean, you, he is awful to her and there's, like, there's no way that you can rewrite the script for him to be nice to her. And mm. I understand maybe, like, the guy, your guy was trying to find something redeeming in his mm. character or whatever. But I think, yeah, I would play it very much like she, once she gets what she needs from him, is able to say, mm, no. Yeah. Like, this is not how this works. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I like it. And and no reference to what happens with Freddie. Like, you don't need to know that there is a love story in there. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Is There is – Freddie exists in the play, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. Yeah. In the play, Freddie is like this sort of lower-born, like a bit of a rube. What's the – I don't know what the English version of that is. Oh, but okay. But like sort of try, like a social climber. Yeah, right. And that was obviously not good enough. Like in the musical they wanted him to be some really like – a gentleman or whatever. she can aspire to. Yeah, yeah, but in the play he's just as silly a character. Like he's just right. he's not great. Like he's he's just a bit of a cipher. And I love that about the play. The real the only like the only great character in the play is Eliza. Yeah. She's the only one who's three dimensional and 
Yeah, fascinating. It is fascinating. Oh, yeah. God, I loved that play. Thank you my, to my lovely English teacher for introducing yeah. me to it. So some fun facts yes. after all that heavy stuff. The Gershwins had a 1925 musical called Tell Me More, which had actually been called My Fair Lady in its out-of-town tryout. Oh. And it also had a musical number called My Fair Lady. So um, Lerner called Ira Gershwin to, like, let him know that they were going to call the musical My Fair Lady. And so the title of the musical comes from, in part, the original title of the play, which was to be Fair Eliza okay. before it was called Bing Malian, and the last verse of London Bridge is Falling Down. You know, you go, London Bridge is falling down, falling down, falling down, London Bridge is falling down, my fair the lady. lady. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, wow. So it's just like, which uh, I, I just think is a, cool. A reference. It's just a reference. Yeah. Um, also a fun fact, we are recording this episode on the 5th of March 2021, which would be Rex Harrison's 113th birthday. Ah, Happy birthday, Rex Harrison. Random. He mm. died some time ago, right? 1990, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, Rex Harrison fact, on the night of its first tryout, he had a proper diva meltdown. About, of course. Of course, about the orchestra. So, like, he was uncomfortable singing in front of an orchestra. Such a weird thing to be uncomfortable about. I mean, yeah. he should have because he can't sing. Yeah. So he refused to go on stage. He locked himself in his dressing room and refused to come out. And apparently, like, people were so convinced that he wasn't going to come out that everyone was dismissed and told to go home. <gasps> and then, like, an hour before the show, he was like, okay, no, I'll do it. And they had to, like, call people back in oh my goodness. to do the show. What a diva. Yeah. Terrible behaviour. I think he's kind of known for that, isn't he? Yes, definitely. Yeah. yeah. For just kind of being an awful human being. Well, I think that's like a lot of people say he was Higgins. Yeah, right. Yeah. What do you think about there is there is some rhetoric that maybe he is gay? And I think Rex like, Harrison or Higgins? No, no, Higgins, the character. Yeah. And I think like, no. No, I don't think so. Well, I think I've not seen him played that way, certainly. Yeah. yeah. Um but I just think he's a bad person. He's a misogynist. He's not he's Yeah, not, he seems more like a petulant man baby to me yeah it's not that he's not attracted to women he just hates them yeah yeah Yeah. I don't and probably himself to a certain extent definitely it is funny though isn't it that it's like because he's pickering a widow I don't think we ever find out no because pickering also is just like this dude that turns up and turns up and just lives there they just have like this weird bromance going on yeah yeah Yeah. but it's not like they're life partners because they just meet randomly don't even know each other yeah so it's just like, but I think that's actually what you did. Like you visited a person and you just like stayed with them indefinitely. Yes. <laughs> that's just what you did. It's so bizarre. It's bizarre. Okay. So some gateway songs. Yeah. Obviously the music is beautiful. I think. Do you like, so like, obviously, as we said, Rex Harrison can't sing. And so they wrote all these songs mm. in this kind of speak singing style for Hate. him. Hate that. Yeah. Okay. So you don't like any of those. But I. What I do think is clever is that I think it does represent the character. Yeah. Like I think it is jarring when you're in a beautiful musical with just gorgeous stuff and then yeah. this dickhead character you hate comes out and speaks, sings a yeah. ter- like a hymn, hymn to him or whatever it's called. Terrible. Oh, terrible. He's, it's like, he's and there's like the lots worst. of them, right? There is lots of them. Yeah. And to talk about the song I've grown accustomed to her face as some sort of romantic I know. love song is just completely <laughs> missing the point. Vomit. Vomit. So anyway, it took me a long time to reach this conclusion. But okay. On the Street Where You Live is actually a beautiful song. It's a beaut. I've loved this song for years. It should be listened to. Yeah. I, I think I just am like, ugh, this song again. Yeah, like it gets done a lot by like boys it's who think so they're tenors. Oh, <laughs> you know. It's so beautiful. It's got a beautiful melody. Yeah. It's just lovely. Yeah, it is lovely. It's lovely. It's also really nice that this, the only romantic song in the entire show is just like, by this 
just hapless, yes. also child of a Dummy. man. Yeah. Like there's just no – I just love that there is no love in this show and nor should there be because he like he doesn't know her and she says that to him. He's like – she's yeah. like, what do you what do you mean? Yeah. You fool. Yeah. Oh, love He's it. foolish. So anyway, I've linked – to the most recent Broadway revival because it's pretty. That's that boy that I love. Yeah, it's that boy. Also modern recording techniques. So yes. Oh, so beautiful. So as well as this, you should hear Julie Andrews sing Wouldn't It Be Lovely. Oh, it's just, yeah. And that's just a great song. Of course, I could have danced all night yeah. as well. So yeah. I have, I've put, I think I put, so the Julie Andrews Wouldn't It Be Lovely, but probably the most recent I could have danced all night. Okay. Um, please don't discount this show because it is old. It is quite a feminist work if done correctly. And mm. the music is bloody beautiful if you skip Higgins' songs. Yeah. Like it just is. Yeah. And those beautiful ensemble numbers. Oh, yeah. And like Ascot when they're it's all such dressed a spectacle. up. Yeah. A beautiful spectacle. Yes. And the like costuming, costuming in this show can be amazing. Yes. Yeah. I, I just think we dismiss it easily. Sometimes justifiably, but it, it it's one that I think we shouldn't throw away. It's like it's a mis- it's a misogynist piece of trash, but you could do it not that way. Yes, well, it was originally intended to not be misogynist. Yeah, it was supposed to be a comment on misogyny rather than, yeah. It's so interesting that it's like when we talk about like um, you know auth- authorial um, like intent, right? Yes. Like. It's like the original source material has that intent. Then, like the way that this show has been done doesn't have that intent. I know, but then and you would it's think like, like something from nineteen thirteen was probably intended to be a bit douchey, but yeah. no, it, I just I yeah. don't think it was. It's interesting, mm. but Lerner and Lowe kind of made it douchey. Well, yeah, and to be fair, like the original play when it was produced, a lot of feedback was like, no, 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 we need a happy ending. So even during Bernard Shaw's life and the play itself, a lot of endings and rewrites happened. There was pushback and so there was like, no, we need a love story here. Yeah, fascinating. When that's just not what he wanted. I love that about him. Me too. I don't think I knew that about him. That he's a feminist. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. I loved all of that. That has been my fair lady. Um, Well, in a real different Twist. I actually don't know what you're going to talk you? about. What I, is it? Today I'm talking to you about Avenue Q. Oh. Could you get any more different? I actually don't think you could. No. <laughs> wow. Okay. I'm just going to have to like re reset everything. Yeah. So I was actually thinking Avenue about Q. like reading that Singular Sensation book. I was mm. thinking about because there was a lot of these stories about like the late 90s where I was like, oh, I it's great reading those stories because they're not things I would have been aware of yeah. when they happened. Avenue Q is such a moment in time, hey. That's right. Yeah. So I think of this as being, this was really like, so, you know, 2003, mm. you know, we were both in late high school. Like to me it's like that is the point and the internet was really becoming a thing. Yeah. That is the point I feel like where I did start to hear about musicals as they were happening on Broadway. Yes. Which never really happened before then no, for I, me. I remember this when this like cast recording came out yep. that I was there like I was there for that yes like I was there at the beginning of so this. my my sort of history with this show is that I always feel like it's been somewhat a part of my life ever since it existed yes, kind of thing I'm the same. um I would say it's not like one of my favorite favorites but I do I've always you fraud a... this this is called my favorite <laughs> musical well it's 41 um but I do really appreciate like the 
creativity and humor involved in the show. Um, I believe I've only seen it twice. I saw an amateur production when the amateur rights were first released and I saw the Australian professional production years and years ago, also at the Theatre Royal at the MLC Centre. I really regret that I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It was it was great. I remember I, I convinced my dad to come with me and nice. he loved it. He would. He loved it. Yeah, he he loved it so much. So it is a really well-constructed and very original musical. Um, I will say that, like, reflecting on it now in 2021 some of the comment content does give me pause but yeah. most of it really holds up like like a, a large percentage of it really holds up so music and lyrics by robert lopez and jeff marks and mm. book by jeff witty so a bit of background about those people because we've talked about book of mormon which of course bobby lopez was involved in but aside from that we haven't talked about the others at all so yes um bobby lopez of course has gone on to do book of mormon and frozen mm. uh, the film and the musicals Such and frozen a weird, too. like trans yeah yeah with his wife mm. Kristen. um jeff marks has worked on various projects since avenue q but nothing that's made it to broadway or really gotten a lot of publicity uh jeff witty has had an interesting career since so he conceived and wrote the original book to the go-go's musical head over heels oh, that really? was um you remember it was on broadway a few years ago yes but he actually left after michael mayer became director some years before it went to before it went to broadway but he like conceived the show oh wow yeah so i think there was like some creative difference with him and michael mayer and he left the project and, and it got completely rewritten when it went to broadway but Even yeah it was his yeah, isn't wow, that crazy? That's fascinating. Um, he also wrote the book to bring it on the musical. Oh, uh, I think I knew that. Yeah. Yes. Uh, one other sort of random fact is he also co-wrote the screenplay for the 2018 feature film Can You Ever Forgive Me, which mm. is based on the memoir of famed letter forger Lee Israel. Oh, cool. Uh, which, speaking of Richard E. Grant, he was in that. It's him and Melissa McCarthy. Yes. Um, he was nominated for an Academy Award for that film, um, Jeff Whitty was. Shit. Um, it's an excellent film and I highly recommended it. I watched it, um, I think, on a plane at one point, but it's really good. Um, and also, fun fact about that film, the director was Mario. Heller, which many people listening would know from the Queen's Gambit, she played the ad- the adoptive mother of the girl. Nice, um, and she was excellent. She was in that. so good. Yeah, um, so she, really she directed that piano? film. Sorry, do you reckon it was really her playing piano then? Well, I don't so know. Good. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. Note. But she's a super talented person. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. Um, so the show is set on a fictional street in an outer, outer borough of um, borough of New York City. It is centred around the character of Princeton, who has just graduated college and is keen to discover his purpose in life. Um, he's just moved to Avenue Q, the only place he could afford after starting at Avenue A and working his way down. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So we meet all of Princeton's, na- Princeton's neighbours who live on the block and follow his lives with them, including a burgeoning romance with Kate, one of his neighbours, as Princeton struggles to find his purpose. And they all learn lessons about entering adulthood in exactly the way an episode of Sesame Street might play out. Yeah. So it's basically like a series of lessons that they all learn. Yes. Um, At the end, Princeton has an epiphany. Maybe his purpose is to put everything he has learned into a Broadway musical and everybody immediately ridicules him. (laughs) The the cast reminds Princeton that in the real world, many people never find their purpose, but life goes on and everything both good and bad is only for now. Nice. Yeah. So that's, I mean, really it's like a series of things happening to that that group of people who live. It's like vignettes. Yeah, exactly. So a bit of history about the show because it's great. So... Jeff Marks met Robert Lopez at a songwriting class at the BMI workshop. I think we've probably 
probably mentioned the BMI workshop before. Yeah. It's basically like a super long running workshop in New York City for musical theatre writers mm. where it's so in other words like you would get like a composer and a lyricist might meet there and become a, a songwriting duo kind yes. of thing. Um, but I mean literally if, like Aaron's and Flaherty I think met there or they certainly, did. yeah, so like so many people have gone there. Um, as part of that workshop the two decided to write songs for a speculative Muppet movie based on Hamlet called Kermit, Prince of Denmark. Awesome. Um, It went really well and they actually pitched the idea to the Henson family, but it was turned down. So they instead decided to create. They're okay with Muppets from space, but not Kermit, Prince of Denmark. What the hell? Jeez. So um, instead, uh, Marx and Lopez decided to create their own show with original puppet characters, which was basically a parody of Sesame Street. Um, it was actually originally supposed to be a TV show, not a not a stage show. But after a reading, producers Robin Goodman and Jeffrey Seller, we've talked about Jeffrey Seller many times, he's a producer of Hamilton, Rent, like some of the most original stuff on Broadway. Mm. Um, they convinced them to turn it into a theatre show rather than um, a TV show. Yeah, nice. So it ran uh, off-Broadway at the Vineyard Theatre. We talked about the Vineyard Theatre in the title of show episode. That's where that originated. For 72 performances from March 19 to through to May 4, 2003, and transferred to Broadway, um, starting previews at the John Golden Theatre on July 10th, 2003. After 2,556 performances, it closed on Broadway on September 13th, 2009, at which point it made an unprecedented move to off-Broadway at the New World Stages Complex from October 9th, 2009 and played there for another decade wow. until its final performance on May 26th, 2019. I actually don't think I realised so that. So almost 16 years all up, wow. which is just pretty incredible. Yeah, I don't know what I thought in my head, but it wasn't that. No, right? Shit. So uh, it was nominated for six Tonys uh, at the 2003 Tonys. It won three. It won Best Score, Best Book and Best Musical. So that was a massive upset. So it beat, for Best Musical, it beat The Boy From Oz, Carolina Change and Wicked. Like it was such an upset. It was such an upset. Um, the show was produced in London by Cameron McIntosh. Is that what that you've t- you've talked about that documentary? It's about that yeah, season, isn't it? It's called that Show Business: season? The Road to Broadway. And I think didn't I discover it was on YouTube the week yes. that I yeah. And I discovered that it's got the worst title of a documentary ever. <laughs> it's a really good doco though. So it's yeah, it's about that season. It's of about the 2003 Tonys and those four shows. Yeah. In fact, it covers. Um, I don't actually think it goes into the boy from Oz that much. It covers Taboo oh, quite right. a bit. The boy George. Yes. Because yes. remember, like Rosie O'Donnell put all of this money into it <laughs> and lost right. it all. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. So um, in London, it was produced by Cameron McIntosh and opened in 2006 at the Noel Coward Theatre. It later transferred to both the Gielgud Theatre and then Wyndham's Theatre before closing in October 2010 after an almost five-year run. So still pretty decent in yeah, London. Yeah, very decent. Um, Interestingly, after it opened on Broadway, instead of doing a national tour like most um, shows would, they instead signed an exclusive contract to do a season in Las Vegas. So this was at a time when Vegas was just like opening a bunch of musicals, right? They would do these kind yeah. of truncated it's a perfect place for 90 it, minutes. Well, interestingly, it didn't succeed there. Yeah, it should have. And it closed it really after only nine months. Like it had a theatre built for the show. I do just wonder if like Vegas wasn't ready for that sort of show yet. Well, like, I think that it was – 
I think Vegas is more cons- – I think it was more conservative than they thought it was. Wow. Like you think of it as this really kind of debauched sort of place, but actually I think it's like conservative people going and being debauched and For not like – who don't really want to hear Avenue Q. Oh, they just want to see Celine Dion yeah. or Don Henley. <laughs> to be fair, I love Celine Dion, but <laughs> – Oh, that's no slight yeah, on Celine yeah. Dion. Um, yeah, so it, um, so it closed in, in Vegas after nine months, at which point it then launched the US tour. Um, so some fun facts. We have mentioned this before, I think, in a previous episode, but, you know, MTI does those school editions of yes. songs, of, of shows. Oh, we've talked about this. Yeah. And so, um, you know, they have to kind of make them PG, if you will. And there's a, a you know, popular song in the show Avenue Q called The In- Internet is for Porn. And in the school edition it is called My Social Life is Online. <laughs> It's so shit. I cannot tell you how, like we've said it, just don't fucking do Avenue Q at a school. Yeah. Don't do it. I, it's weird, isn't it's it? It's weird. It's so weird. It's like what um, Bill Finn wrote about Spelling Bee. And, oh, and I loved that. My Unfortunate Erection. My Unfortunate Erection. Because like... How about you just how about you just do the show? Yeah, he was just like And in that instance, also kids have erections like Yeah, he was just, just like if you're going to do this show like just do the song as it's written. Yeah. Like instead of he like I like basically saying he'd been he'd written that version under duress. Yes, yeah. I love that. Um so when the cast recording was released, mm-hmm. it was likely the first ever cast recording to use a parental advisory label. I remember that. Yeah. Oh, my God, because I, I, I still remember that CD yeah. so well because yeah. I think I paid like 50 bucks for it at Borders. Probably. <sighs> yeah. So well, it's not amazing. Th- it definitely needed that Makes advisory. Sense, yeah. Uh, the Avenue Q puppets cost up to $10,000 each wow. and each requires up to 120 hours of hand fabrication per character. Insanity. And Do you reckon I'm, it's the same for Sesame Street? I, oh, I'm sure. Yeah, wow. They would have a whole, like, workshop of people. It reminds me of that show Kidding. Oh, my God, I love that show so How much. How good is it? Kidding, it's on stand if you're in Australia. Yes. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. It is incredible. What's her name? Is it Catherine Keener? Yeah, Catherine Keener. Oh. Frank Langella. <gasps> Everyone in it, it's amazing. Um, Kitty from Arrested Development. Yes, yes. She's so good. <laughs> She's so good. Um, yeah, so it was a real, like, like mind blown moment for me uh, when they discussed this show on every musical ever that podcast I mentioned um, that of course there are like several puppets yes. for each character. We've mentioned when we did one of our mixtapes, we we're talking about you can be as loud as the hell if, um, as the hell you want when you're making yeah. love. So because like, they had, I I thought they would take clothes off yes. the puppets, but no, of course so they of don't. Of course, like you know, there's this, there's like a set, there's like a quite a, a graphic sex scene. sex scene on stage between puppets, um, and. Yeah, you just sort of think, oh, yeah, well, they just take off the clothes of the puppets and the and the puppets are wearing a bra and undies underneath. But, no, of course, it's a bra and undies version of that character. <laughs> but I suppose we just think of the puppets as characters. That's so right. As you would with an actor, you would just, like, put a costume on yes. them. But, no, there's, like, six different puppets. That was like, I was like, oh, my God. I didn't even think of that, but Never of course. Never thought of it. Of course. of course. you wouldn't want to be changing them all the time. Imagine changing a puppet. I know, so weird. <laughs> um, so one other project that uh, – so I think I mentioned in our Book of Mormon episode, but um, – like uh, Lopez had started working on uh, – sorry, Bobby Lopez did do Book of Mormon, but Jeff Marks had started working on Book of Mormon. It was the four of them with the South Park guys and ended up like leaving for creative differences. Yes. Uh, I'm sure he's done very well out of it. but sure. Um, but, yeah, ended up leaving. But so they actually don't have that many projects that they've done together aside from Avenue Q. Well, I mean, this one was successful enough, right? Very successful. But one of them was the Scrubs musical episode. Yes, like, so which successful. a lot of people love as well. So if you yeah. love Scrubs and you love the musical, they were they wrote several of the songs for that. Yeah. Um, 
Bobby Lopez also met his wife, Kristen Anderson, in the same BMI workshop. Nice. And who he, of course, has gone on to write the songs for Frozen with. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so it was a very uh, successful workshop for Absolutely. him. Absolutely. What a day. Um, in the, I hope it was I hope it went hope more it was than one day. day. Yeah. <laughs> in the UK, the character of Gary Coleman, which is based mm. on the real-life former Coleman. child actor, mm. was played by a man, whereas uh, they were played by a woman in New York. Interesting. Yeah, and I think, think you can just choose when you yeah, do the show. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it so was, re- it's so random that Gary Coleman yeah, is I know. Anyway. They considered changing it after he died. He died. Yeah. yeah they, they sort of considered it and then they just, they sort of see it as a bit of a tribute to him. Yeah, right. Instead. I know that he tried, at first he said he was okay with it and then he tried to sue them for a while, but it never went anywhere. Yeah. He never actually did. Yeah, okay. I don't think he had the money to, to be honest. Like no, it was, sure. it's a real tragic story, his life. His life is very sad. Yeah. That's why I just feel like, mm, did it need to be him? Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, that's kind of one of those things now where I look back at the musical and I'm like. Why? Yeah, like you, I just you feel that? like you wouldn't do that now. No, you wouldn't. Um, It was such a big surprise when Avenue Q won Best Musical at the Tonys that in the moments after the announcement that Avenue Q had won, two giant video screens inside Radio City Musical Hall read Best Musical Wicked. Like that's how big a surprise it was. I love it. Yeah. Um, And I mentioned that the show ends saying like everything is only for now. So the, the finale song is called For Now and it has a line in which the cast yells something that is only for now. So... George W. Bush was president of the U.S. at the time the show came out. That's how long ago it was. Mm. Um, and that is the line on the cast recording, for example. Yes. But that line has changed over the years depending on current events. Um, this was in the New York production. So here are some examples. Ready. So Fox News, Prop 8, which was, of course, the legislation banning nice. gay, ma- gay marriage in um, California. Um, NRA, like Na- National Rifle Association. And God, Ebola- I hope that is only for now. Yeah. And Ebola. Oh, wow. Cool. Isn't that? Prescient, anyway, because of where we are now with COVID. Yeah. And then in 2015 when Trump became president, it changed to Donald Trump and remained that way for the last four years until it closed. Nice. Of course. (laughs) Of course. Of course. So a couple of talking points. So um, the show features both human characters and puppet characters, which I love, right? Yeah, me too. So the fact that we can see the humans operating the puppets is a really big part of the, the performance style, sort of like how Disney does with Lion King and also has since done with Frozen. Um, and I wanted to just mention a few of the different types of puppets that are used in the show. So there's rod puppets. Single rod puppets have one movable arm controlled by one rod with the other arm posed in a permanent gesture or attached to the puppet's torso. Nice. So Princeton and Kate Monster are examples of those sorts of puppets. Yeah. A double rod puppet, which is the character of Rod. Rod. <laughs> and Lucy. Uh, both arms are, are movable and double rod puppet puppets each controlled by a separate rod. And the puppeteer controls the puppet's head and mouth with with his or her dominant hand and holds one or both rods in the other hand. Oh, wow. Yeah. Gosh, that'd be tough to yeah, use. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Then there's um, live hands puppets. So Nikki and Trekkie Monster are both examples of those. Yes. They require two puppeteers, each of whom contributes one hand and arm dressed with a long sleeve and glove matching the puppet's costume, mm-hmm. which become the arms and hands of the puppet. The speaking puppeteer controls the puppet's left hand, head and mouth, while the second silent operator controls the right hand. Imagine on your resume, like, silent Trekkie monster. Yeah, so that's kind of like, I know that, like, so they'd be also like the Bad News Bears, for example. Yes. There's like a couple of ensemble members that sort of do singing and they'd be like the second puppeteer a lot of the time. Yeah. They'd probably also be an understudy, that sort of thing. It's an yeah. interesting, like, idea of a track in a musical. Yes. Yeah. And then the last type, 
types are mechanized and freehand puppets. So not directly controlled by the puppeteer's hand. Instead, they're controlled by a concealed trigger that when pulled causes the mouth to open. Hmm. So like a kind of like a toy grabber. Yeah. Yeah. So that's sort of the last type. Um, so yeah, those are the types of puppets used in the show. <laughs> it's actually such a specific skill set. Yeah. That, like it would be hard to find. Yeah. Absolutely. People who can operate the puppets well, plus sing. And- oh, my God. I'm going to go blank on his name. But the guy who was the original um, Trekkie monster, yeah. he um, he was like – he's like an incredibly famous puppeteer. Yeah, well And he was involved be. literally from when they did that Kermit, um, Kermit like Prince of Denmark. Oh, the Prince of Denmark. Yeah, since they did that um, – workshop like he was involved ever since then well, if you're been going like to work with advising. puppets you need a puppeteer right yeah exactly Jeez. exactly so um i also want to talk about the broadway to off-broadway transfer that the show did so the move from the golden which seats about 800 people to new world stages where um it sat about 500 people which is like obviously the maximum a broadway show an off-broadway show can hold yes. um and basically like so they saved a bunch of money in doing that. It meant that they could keep running the show mm. because certain things were a lot cheaper. So, for example, the weekly advertising costs would be lowered to about $10,000 from $50,000. Oh, wow. Yep. The minimum weekly salary for an off-Broadway performer was about $1,100 compared with $1,600 for a Broadway performer. Mm. So, like, just oh, a few they could of, just pay people less. Yeah, exactly. So just a, a couple of those things together meant that, they were able to continue running the show, mm. which they would have had to close on Broadway kind of otherwise. It's a tough one though, isn't it? Because like, well, they're still doing the same show, right? So they've yeah. had a taste of a Broadway. Well, I don't know that – I don't know if any of the cast went Surely with it at wouldn't. that time. Yeah. yeah. But mm. also because I think there would have been a certain like cachet of like being a Broadway actor, like do they want to go to then doing an off-Broadway mm, Take a pay run. cut. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean they may not have taken a pay cut. It could have been that they negotiated mm. the same salary they're on on Broadway. I'm sure a good agent would do that for them. But yeah. like – It is also the sort of show that I think suits a smaller theatre. Yeah. You know, like I Absolutely. just think – I think it suits that. Mm. Like it's kind of amazing that it was on Broadway to begin with in, I agree. in a lot of I ways. Completely agree. Yeah. yeah. And I guess like 800 seats is actually not that big, which is part of it. No, that's right. It's not that much bigger than 500. Yeah. yeah. Compared to others. The other thing is like, as I said, there is definitely re-listening to it, like some problematic stuff going on. Yes. So it, it honestly, like most of it. I just in really listening to it, it just reminds me what a place of privilege it's coming from and yep. also that it is clearly written by three white men. Like Definitely. That is – and also just kind of like three bros in a way, you know what I mean? Like It's just got that – like not that it is the South Park guys but it's just got that yeah, sort of th- like – they love them though. Like they were their yeah. heroes, yeah. you know. Like we're just – we're comedians who don't give a shit about anyone. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So the biggest example of this is in the song Everything's a Little Bit Racist. Um, and it Everyone's is... a little bit racist? Oh. Yeah, I don't know why I've written everything. That's all right. Um, which is probably the most famous song in the show. Yes, I would um, say so. Kind of the whole premise of the song is that microaggressions are no big deal when, in fact, if anything, the, like the last few years have taught us that they are, in fact, quite a big deal. A big deal. And, like, just reflective of a larger problem. Yeah. Do you want to just explain what a microaggression is oh, for sure. our audiences? So kind of like little assumptions that we make about people, generally like people of other races or yeah. even just like like sexualities, gen- genders even. Yeah. And, like, the way we might sort of um, – 
let's say, make sure that a black person, say like a black person's hair should be presentable, for Mm. example, that might be a word someone uses, right? Mm. When what they really mean is like not black. Like it's like, okay, but black hair literally responds differently than white hair. So like what you think is presentable is not the same kind of thing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, like if we have learned anything, surely it is that microaggressions are just as harmful yes. as over, in fact, more harmful, I think, because they're more insidious. Yeah. And cause you don't think that they're racist. That's right. And so for most, most people, they think, well, it's not a problem. It's yeah. not racism. It is. It's racism. Yeah. And so like, you know, so many people, and this is sort of what a lot of us have learned with like anti-racism research and stuff is that they think they aren't racist because they're not like a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Yeah. But like, that's the point. They still are being racist Mm. and it's still acceptable. Right. Yep. So (laughs) on the other hand, right. So that's like one thought I have about this song, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand to acknowledge 18 years ago that everyone's unconscious bias means that they often do these things Mm -hmm. was kind of a big deal. It is a big deal. Like, so on that sense, I really think that the song works. It's just that the end message ends up being, stop being so PC. And that's the bit that really hasn't aged very well. We all do it. It's fine. Yeah. Like that attitude is not how we are now, right? Well, so I don't like about it that the idea is that people, the puppets of different races all realise that actually even though they are victims of racism that they themselves are racist and so they should probably not really care so much. So I think fundamentally, no, it is flawed. Yeah, exactly. So it's... Look, it's really been interesting. There's just like lots of, even just like the the beginning of "You Can Be as Loud as Hell You Want" is a line where you go, "Take her home, she's wasted." Yeah, you know, yeah, and exactly. I'm just like, "Oh yeah, rape culture." Yeah, right. like, like I'm just we like, love that. Okay, mm-hmm. like there's just like lots of things like that in the show where I go. Oh, yes, this was written 18 years ago. Yeah, and I know that at the time people were just like in stitches because of how hilarious it is, but we know, like, we just know better now. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I do think that elements of the show are still hilarious, but yes. yeah, some things have aged better than others, let's put it that way. Yeah. Yeah. But even like, so if like, this is a musical that normalized like masturbation, that's yeah. a big deal. Yeah, that is good. That's great. Yeah. More of that. Exactly. Less of the other shit. Exactly. And even kind of women owning their sexuality a bit as totally. well. There's a lot of that in a yep. Yeah. So it's a yeah, it's a it's a tricky one. It's this very one. tricky. Yeah. yeah. It's got some it's it's got they were obviously trying to be pushing boundaries. Yeah. And some some of them it's like, oh, we've learned something since then. And some of them it's like good for you. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. Totally yeah. agree. So yeah. Um so I'm going to link to a, a, just two recordings that are on Spotify. One is the original Broadway cast, obviously. The mm. other is an album called Avenue Q Swings, mm. which they did as like a fundraiser for something or other. And it's like all swing covers. It's the original cast and they're all doing these like j- jazz and swing covers of the of the show. Wow. Yeah. I've never heard of that. Never. It's fun, isn't it? That's awesome. Yeah, it's, I'll on, be it's listening on Spotify. To that. I'll link to that as well. Uh, and then a few gateway songs. So I've gone for um, firstly, If You Were Gay. Yes. Um, which is uh, Rod and um, Nikki, who Nikki, are yeah. um, roommates. Roommates. And, uh, you know, they're like. It's like the Burton Ernie yes, equivalent. Yes, exactly. Yeah. It's supposed to be like Burton Ernie. And. Um, and one is convinced that the other is gay and basically like, it's okay, you can tell me kind of thing. Yeah. And that's also a song that like a lot of people know from the show. Definitely. And, um, it's quite cute. It's a boppy song. Yeah. The, the second one, which we have talked about before because our, you know, 
uh, micro episodes every second week are based on this song. It's called Mixtape. Yes. Uh, not this song, but the concept of mixtapes. Yes. But we both love this song. Yes. Uh, both Josephine and I. Very and yeah, much. we just like. The every- idea of making someone a mixtape. It's just a song it's, about making it's very a mixtape. 2003. Yes, uh, I still a, also appreciate mixtapes. Same. Yeah. Very much. Um, but, yes, it's a super cute song. And it's also, I think, like really love, like it's a good kind of portrayal of when you're not sure if someone likes you and you're trying to read every single signal that they're putting out. Don't you love in the middle of the song where Princeton goes to the toilet? Yeah, and, but like, again, like, what, his like, what like, like kitty humour in the show as well. Like It's literal are, toilet humour. Yeah, there are certain moments like that where I'm like, what is this? Yeah, like, what is it? Why? <laughs> I love that a bunch of literal bros were like, this will be hilarious. I know. Well, because Make I think him do a huge shit. I remember seeing, yes, that's right, literal toilet humour, as you say. Yeah. I remember seeing some interview where they were like, we wanted to write a musical for people who don't like musicals. Like yeah. that was kind of the idea. Yeah. You know, so yeah, so mixtape second one. And the last one I've gone for the finale, which I don't wouldn't often include the finale. For now is nice. But for now is the name of the song and it's like it's just a really lovely song i'm surprised you didn't put it's a fine fine line because i know you love that song. i do love that song i don't know if it's a gateway song it's for this not. show but it's, it's a beautiful not. it's the only and i think i've talked about this before but one of my favorite things in musicals is when it's a really super funny musical with one serious song in the show yeah and that is it's a fine fine line it's, it's a great the, song it's the i love you song from spelling bee of avenue q yes but not as devastating <laughs> no not quite as devastating far out nothing's as devastating that no, song? that's right. So, yeah, that's Avenue Q. Oh, that was fun. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I really like Avenue Q. Yeah, I was going to ask what you think. Well, like I love, oh, of course, I loved it at the time when it came out. Yeah. And I just loved that. I love because I remember knowing like Rent didn't have a parental advisory on it, you know. Oh, yeah, interesting. But, um, Avenue Q did. Yeah. Which is just interesting because obviously like swearing and um, – Taking drugs and having AIDS is not as dangerous to children as, like, <gasps> sexuality, I suppose. Yeah, I guess that was it. Um, and porn maybe. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, I reckon it would be the porn. Definitely, which yeah. is interesting because it all, the statement is just that people watch porn and the, there's know, porn on the on internet. I know, on the internet. So, okay. <laughs> it's literally just a statement of fact. Yeah, it, that is really interesting. Yeah, but, like, I remember just loving it. I actually remember where I was when I first heard it too. Yeah. But we were at that age where, like, <gasps> What? A new musical? Yeah. And yeah. about sex? What? It's true. It was very titillating. This thing we don't know anything about? Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, but no, I have, it's, there's no place for it in my life now. No. Like, it's not really one I, I really noticed that, like, I just, I don't really go back and listen to it. I also think it's a show that just works better seeing it than, like, listening to well, it. Well, so much of it is about that puppet, like, just the yes. spectacle of puppets. Exactly. Once again, I will say, as an actor, that is incredibly intimidating to me. Like, I could never operate a puppet. That is a yeah, whole other skill set. Yeah. That's like being able to tumble, you know. Absolutely. Like, I, no, I can't do that. To fire throw. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it's like, I don't know, who, I don't even know. Uh, uh, All the things I can't do. Yeah. Play the piano accordion. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Rue. Yeah, thanks, Josephine. Thanks for listening, everyone. This has been my favourite musical. And there'll be a mixtape next week. Speaking yep. of mixtapes. That's right. We You can find us on all of um, all the social medias. Yeah, we're on Instagram at My Favourite Musical. You can email myfavouritemusical at gmail.com. Yeah. We're on Twitter at myfavemusical. Not that I ever keep it updated. I'm terrible. Sorry, no. <laughs> We're on TikTok. We post daily um, videos of ourselves dancing. Um, <laughs> that is a bald face lie. It is. I don't even know how TikTok works. No. I don't get it. No. We're not on TikTok. No, we're not. 
Nor do we want to be. We're too old. <laughs> you know, I was on Instagram the other day watching TikTok videos and I'm now obviously there's something about the algorithm that it's like sending me videos of women who have let their hair go grey. <laughs> and so I get like all these people creating videos about like it's okay to just go grey. That's now what I'm that watching. That is fascinating. And I watch it and I think like, yeah, it is okay. Maybe I should. <laughs> I think you should. I should. Yeah. I won't. <laughs> anyway. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. Yeah, bye. Bye.